Welcome to another episode of the My Creative District podcast, where we discuss how to channel your creative power into building the life you want, building the business you want, and making the impact you want. We believe creatives can live out a passionate and fulfilled life when they completely embrace their unique design and purpose. Want to turn your passion into profit? Stay tuned to hear from industry professionals, paradigm shifters, and world changers who have done just that and live it every day. This is the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Hey guys, today I am interviewing Chasta Hamilton and we will be discussing how she is elevating standards not only in the dance industry, but to her audience as a whole. But before we begin, I want to remind you that My Creative District and Worldwide Dance Challenge has just reopened enrollment into the Worldwide Dance Academy. If you know anyone that would be interested in learning how to dance from instructors across the world, have them visit the worldwidedancechallenge.com slash academy to learn more. Now, my up and coming guest here that we have on the show is, I'm super excited because Not only is she a a, a studio owner, uh, but she's also an artistic director uh, of Stage Door Dance Productions, and she is reinventing the dance education model by focusing on character development and community involvement in addition to technique and performance attributes. Now, she has had a chance to make an impact on around 4,000 students in her own studio and many more. She's worked with uh, girls geared for greatness and also the former founder and editor of The Dance Exec. So I am super excited to bring on Chasta. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm excited to be here. As we at the Worldwide Dance Challenge are constantly um, looking at how we can provide a platform for people to compete, I was really intrigued when I found out that you pulled all of your students from the competition world. So we're gonna, we're gonna get to that in a little bit, but I wanna kinda set the stage a little bit get some context. So I I like to ask this, this question of my guests, what was like the 13 year old version of Chasta up to like, bring us up to speed on what was it like growing up for you? You know, as well, as far as involved in sports, what was school like the whole nine yards? So I was a nerd Um, at 13 (laughs) years old. I, I loved school and I had all of these imaginary businesses and operations. I was an only child, so I basically spent every day talking to myself from sunup to sundown. I had imaginary dance studios, imaginary classrooms, just all of these systems and protocols, which my granny sent me folders full of this information a few months ago, and I was reading it. There were names, and I was like, whoa. Like I was, I was weird. I was a weird, weird kid, and I loved school. And I, I just had this passion that I, I wanted to do. I wanted to dance. I wanted to perform. And that was my 13-year-old world. Man, at 13, you already knew, like, this is what I want to do. Was there, like, a solid nerd community? Or was it kind of like, was it kind of like living it out on your own? It was, it was an outlier situation. Um, I wanted to be cool. I wasn't like, yes, go nerds, like when I was 13, but I kind of like always tiptoed around the outside circle of cool, you know, whatever that is, because it's kind of a figment of our imagination. But whatever it is, I was never in it. (laughs) I was definitely always on the outside of it. Through that experience, I just gained kind of this unknowing wealth of knowledge about people. And I didn't really have a click. I kind of was just 
out there on my own, but could get along with almost anyone. And those skills have certainly paid off um, in the creative spaces that I work in now. Interesting. You said that you didn't fit in based on the standards of what was cool, but it's kind of what I, what I find is what was cool in high school and what was a nerd and what was outcast has a tendency to be what we praise when we get older. What's really the definition of cool? Creatives as a whole, we don't realize how we are the ones that really define that. What would you say was the defining moment for you that made you really realize that this is what I love doing and this is what I want to do? Well, it took years. Um, Even though it had been in me all along, I got a full academic scholarship to college because nerd life um, in action. And (laughs) when I got to college, I, you know, I just didn't seem that artists were scholars, which is Mm. a terrible thing, a a terrible preconception that actually doesn't exist. That was something that I was creating. So I was, I decided I would be a lawyer. And then maybe when I was 35, I would open a dance studio. Um, But then I did an internship with the attorney general and I hated it. And that was the moment of like, I cannot sit at a desk from nine to five that doesn't fuel my passion and my fire. So that was the moment that I was like, no, I'm going to own the creative space and kind of stick with that lane. This path required of a lot of investment on your part to get to this part with the attorney general, right? So even by this time, you've invested a lot of time, you've invested a lot of money, you've invested a lot of, I mean, emotional (laughs) expenditure to get here. How was that process for you to decide I'm walking away from this? So luckily I didn't spend a lot of money because I was very, very um, fortunate that they took me into this internship as a sophomore and undergrad, which they never had an undergraduate intern before. But then I hated it. So then I was also having all this guilt of having this like really great internship and hating just the, the process of it. Like I enjoyed the fact that I had a desk and I enjoyed lunch with my friends, but I did not enjoy the research and the work. You know, it's not as theatrical as what you see on TV. You know, what the world is telling you is that you are meant to serve in the creative space. Um, mm. And when I walked away from it, I mean, you know, I left the internship and I was like, I'll dabble and keep kind of going this path for another year. But then, you know, I was standing in a class and it was just, it just felt so right. You know, when you're doing a combo and you're just like, this is who I am and it's mind and it's body and it's energy. And I was like, this is, this is where I have to stay. This is, this is home. And I wanted to make my home and my creative space the best version that I could possibly imagine from all of these experiences that I'd gained in other fields as well. Well, I I did finish the internship and, you know, I was kind of just rolling with it. And then I did end up calling home and I said, you know, I'm not going to take the LSAT because I'm not going to go to law school because dance is where I'm meant to stay. The response was, well, if that's, you know, what you want to do, go for it. I do luckily come from a very supportive family because I know that that's not the experience that everyone has. I just went for it. I'm sure you, I mean, did you get any kind of negative response from saying, yeah, this wasn't really all that I thought it was going to be? Did anybody give you a hard time about kind of wanting to like, probably the position that so many people are are dying to get and you're like, eh, it's not all that. And by the way, I really think I want to do something else. Like, what was that kind of response like? You know, I, I don't think I was like as vocal about 
this wasn't working for me at the time. I think I kind of waited until I was a little more removed. But now, like when I go back and I speak to kids in this program and by kids, you know, college students, I always tell them, like, take an internship. Like, if you have something that you want to do, like, you need to get out there and you need to try it before you commit to a life in a field. Because I learning that I didn't like it was one of the best lessons I could have ever received. What do you feel like going through that time also equipped you for to better serve you in what you really wanted to do? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because I also think sometimes we work so linear that we're so entrenched in like what we know that we don't look beyond what we know. And there's so much that we can learn from beyond what we know to bring back to what we know that elevates us to this level of excellence. And by watching, listening, experiencing, we gain power and wisdom and knowledge that we may not have otherwise. So, okay, so now you're, you come to this conclusion that all right, I finished my internship, but I really love this dance thing. So now what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so now what? So I was in college, you know, finishing up. I was doing some freelance teaching, substituting, um, had choreographed like a middle school musical. Um, and I was just cultivating my talents. I was doing some like tutoring on the side with the Autism Society of North Carolina. And then it came to a point where it was like, if this is going to become my career, I have to figure out a way that I can create a business that it will sustain my livelihood. I graduated college in 2007, sort of phased out all of that free, the freelance work. And then in June of 2009, I opened the first location of the studio. So I had a little bit of like a 10 month window where I really focused. I was able to save towards the end of my college tenure to support myself in doing that, but to just focus on what I wanted to create and how that would look and how it would kind of be different in the market. Because I had a friend at one point that said, if you wind up 10 studios or 10 houses in a neighborhood in a row, what's going to make your house different than everyone else's house that's around you? So what can you offer that is going to make you stand out? The, the number one thing that people, excuse that people use use to not like really fully engage in their creative superpower is well you know there's already a, b a bunch of people that are doing it so why would anybody listen to me or why would anybody hire me or why would you know why would mine be any more valuable and I think what we forget is that there is something that we have that's valuable so I'm curious how did you answer that question and what did you tap into to answer that question? Well, I mean, I didn't answer it well at the time because I was young and naive. <laughs> As we like, all are at one point, I right? Like, I was like, I'm the best because that's that like youthful ego, you know? Yeah, right. Um, there you go. And now 12 years outside of that, obviously I have a much more polished response, but it's like that raw youthful energy is good. Like if you channel it in the right way. And over the years, like I was seeing, I started recognizing where I was kind of just going with the flow and not really staying true to myself because it was what every other creative in the space was doing. But I also started recognizing where my values and my beliefs and my passion kind of come into play. And about the third or fourth year of the studio, I recognized that dance was the vehicle that was serving my purpose to empower and inspire people through the performing arts. So that Ooh. was a light bulb moment. Boom, boom, boom. I love, I love that because uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm a full believer that we are all created to make an impact in some way, shape or form. 
Um, but I love how you said that that was your vehicle, that your, your power, your creativity was there to serve your purpose instead of it being your purpose. Did you have this like moment, this, 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 uh, experience that brought you here or was it kind of like drawn out? What was it? Well, it was definitely drawn out, but there was an experience and I have a friend and his name is Mike Cedar and he does this, um, He's all about like intention and experience. And ironically, we met through dance competitions, which is a really funny way that, and, <laughs> and, and Michael Roderick, the same way that I met um, you. And we were eating dinner at a restaurant in New York City. And he was kind of going through some like leadership stuff. And he was like, let's just practice and try it out. And we're like doing these bullseyes and writing things out that are purposeful and non-purposeful. And I kept that little piece of paper. And it took about three or four years before I actually cleaned up everything to actually fit kind of what the pieces of paper were telling me. Um, because, you, I mean, how often do you do things because, oh, well, this is going to give me glory or notoriety or it's the right thing to do or it's what everyone else is doing. And we even tend to, you know, we tell kids not to do that, but we also continue to do it as adults. So I had some bad habits and negative, you know, just subtleties that needed to be corrected. So you said you had something that you wrote down three or four years prior that all of a sudden you get back to it and now it starts to make sense. Yeah, I would just carry it in my purse so I could look at it and like remember that I either was doing, I was on the right path or I was going off the path. Um, and I just, you know, I'm a visual person. So I do like written things, whether it's affirmations or a checklist or goals. The more frequently we, re we revisit those, the more we know if we're like staying true to our course or if we're kind of getting off track. Where did the table start to turn from that being your focus to being something different? Well, you know, when, so youthful, youthful Jasta was like, be the best, get the trophies, prove to all these people that you're in your young twenties and you deserve this place. But then, you know, it, we were getting to this point where it was like, what do these trophies mean? And like, what are they cultivating? Like, what is it that we're trying to do? And it, the answer was that winning dance competitions was not it, that there was a bigger purpose and meaning. So I spent two years kind of in this correctional period of observing, watching, monitoring, figuring out how we could rebrand and pivot and re-strategize to set ourselves apart in the market. And that is really, change is hard. Like the first, the, those years in the change were very muddy, but kind of coming out of that change is where I feel like we have gained our momentum. You know, as a creative, the work never stops. What was it, first of all, you said, what do these trophies mean? What was it that you were wrestling with that that question was coming around? Yeah. So what I was wrestling with was as an artist, how do we create value? Um, and as I was, you know, holding that knowledge about empowering and inspiring others, using a kind of trophies, we had a competition team that was called the elite. It was this very divisive and you know, was becoming kind of an internal toxic environment that wasn't true to empowering and inspiring individuals. In fact, I was seeing it do quite the opposite. I didn't want to have a bias. And I said, I need to watch this for two years to make sure that I'm not just being like overly emotional or reactive. So I watched the industry. I watched the impact it was having. And I said, how could we take the positive of those experiences and create it into something different so that students can have elevated training, but they're also walking away with like a deeper meaning 
meaning, a stronger return on investment. And if they never dance again for another day in their life, how are they going to walk out of here being an amazing human that can contribute to society? And it was that kind of figuring that all out that was um, the muddy the muddy phase and just people saying, you know, we want the trophies and staying with the trophy path that went for students, staff, clients, and then also figuring out how to kind of get our tribe to gel, to say like, yes, we believe in what you're doing and we want to be a part of that. You're not against competition in, in the sense where there's a winner and there's a loser. So what was it that you were seeing that you felt was very toxic? So I was seeing a deregulated industry with no standardization in scoring. I was seeing just this vast array of trophies where, you know, students could receive 10 pieces of insignia for one routine. The focus was becoming more on the result versus the process. And that's like a big problem too, because as creatives, we cannot live our lives like on the hope of a result. It needs to be about the process and the growth and what we can learn and gain through that experience instead of an accolade that may or may not ever come to fruition. And so those were kind of just the catalyst of what I was seeing happening, you know, within my buildings. What was that turning people into? What was it causing? You know, there was a lot of internal negativity. So instead of being a collaborative team, there was sort of a breakdown in that. The focus became more on the soloist versus the ensemble. In the creative space, I think the strength is in our ensemble. Like whether you're working as a staff or a team or a show, um, every person has a role. And if they're not delivering like a level of excellence to that role, no matter what it is, the entire thing suffers. So when you have a breakdown in those relationships, it becomes very tough to produce anything outside of that it was just with this deregulation um sort of the perception of progress so if you're winning then you might have a client that says oh well i'm too good enough or i'm too good to be at your studio or if you have a client that's losing you have somebody that's saying well you're not training me you know well enough so it became like a lose-lose business proposition as well so the creative side is suffering the business is suffering and when you have those two kind of negatives, you have to say, well, am I going to sit here and be okay with this? Or am I going to try to activate some level of change to make it better? Yeah. And I think what you're also, you also run into, or, you know, what you were seeing too is, is um, a generation that hasn't learned how to own up to their own result, right? They want to blame everybody else. So they want to, they want to, uh, you know, kind of pass the buck. So it were, so you make this decision to transition and what was that decision? It, it was, we were going to remove ourselves completely from the competitive dance industry. And I can only imagine when you made that announcement, like, so what was the, what was the reaction when you made this announcement that this is where we're going? I think people saw it coming because I was constantly presenting my position that these are deregulated events. We cannot focus on the win. This needs to be experiential and about the process. So ultimately at the end of the season where we decided that we were stepping away, we sat down, we sat down with each and every family. We spent hours one afternoon telling every single family, this is where we're going. This is a new direction. We understand if it doesn't work for you. And that was kind of the exit opportunity for a lot of people that did want to stay in a more um, competitive environment. Initially, everybody was very passively positive. 
but it's okay. easy to be positive, you know, in a straightforward. So when you're sitting and looking at somebody, it's hard to be very negative. We had some people say that they would leave, but then we, you know, stuff started happening. We had um, recruitments to other programs and I'm mean, just the nastiness that you hear about that I certainly never wanted to be a part of this space. So it came and it went. Um, and it's just, it's a part of our story and it was a huge learning experience and it was a learning opportunity for myself as a creative, but also as a leader and how you can kind of create a culture and just make sure that that alignment stays intact. How many students did you lose? Like what percentage of your student body did you lose when you made this decision? So we had it that year, we had a competition team sitting in a little over 50 kids, 10% of our population at the time. This was 2015. The following year, when we rebranded as our intensive training program, we had 12 kids participate. So from 50 to 12? Mm -hmm. Wow. Building up to, the, to making this change, I would, there would be mornings I would get in the shower and I would just cry or I would sit in the car and dread walking into the studio so it was at a point where change had to be made in order for me to stay in this career path. Um, and, you know, they say a lot of times that to make radical change, the suffering has to be so extreme that the pain of change is less than the pain of suffering. And that was the point that I experienced. But I wish that we that nobody would ever have to get to like a level of suffering that they would be confident to make that change a little bit sooner. Um, but I made the change and that's the most important thing, but that after it's kind of like a storm, right? It's very calm. It's kind of eerie. Um, you don't really know what's happening, but you're like, okay, I did it. And now I'm committed to it. And the only where you know, when you kind of hit a baseline, the only place to go is up. So it's like, how can, can we take this new uh, foundation that we have and take it to a level of excellence? How did you stay true to that decision? Well, I gave myself that two year waiting period, which I think is important because sometimes when we make these big decisions, we do them so quickly that we aren't prepared for the consequences. And so I, I was prepared for these consequences and I was prepared to ride them out. There's still push like clients would be like, well, why can't we do this? Or why can't we do that? And it's just being able to confidently say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And this is why this doesn't fit into that model. And those four characteristics that you talked about, the technique, performance, community, character, everything we do needs to somehow tie into those four things. So that's a really good metric to sit down and explain to a client how something does or does not fit kind of that mission of the entire operation. And they appreciate that. And that was a lot of the problems that we were seeing with competitions is that there was no great way to explain the process. Well, obviously, you knew those pillars prior to making this decision or were those pillars created after that decision? We knew them going into the decision. Do you feel like because you had those already mapped out, you were much more confident in your decision because you could see how they fit? Yes. We, so we had the whole new rebrand was mapped out before we even started telling clients that the exit was happening. Do you feel like that also helped the clients understand your decision more too? I do. And even people that chose to leave because the new culture wasn't necessarily what they were looking for still have a great, you know, if I see them out and about, we'll still speak. It was really an opportunity to say, this is who we are and what we're standing for. And if that doesn't fit what you're looking for, we get it. So it, it uh, kind of enabled a peaceful transition. How many of those people that have left actually came back 
about five. Your studio has grown as a result of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were operating with a, a little over 700 active students last season. So at first, like you want everybody to be like, yes, you rock, you're a game changer, right? But they are not doing that like at the beginning <laughs> at all. Like they're like, I don't know what she's doing over there. She's doing her own thing, uh, midlife crisis, whatever they want to call it. But and, you know, right when change happens, people are not like coming to you and being like, yeah, you're on to something. But as the years passed, our clients really started showing appreciation because they were seeing kind of how we differentiated ourselves in the market. And then with that, I've had other educators from different states, different countries even reach out and say, hey, I really respect and appreciate how you're doing this, you know, whatever that is, whether that's maybe the community component or the girls empowerment component. And, and we talk and a lot of them have implemented those things in their programs. And that has been really rewarding and was kind of the motivating factor behind writing the book because I was like, you know, this not so positive, but also in kind of inspiring piece of my story could help other people that maybe are on a threshold of elevating their creative space. I also want to get back into, you know, you are building a tribe in your studio, right? And so many times, whether we're building a, a business, we're building an audience, whatever, we can get caught up in building the audience, the numbers, instead of making the impact, which builds the audience. What did you notice changed in your students when it stopped being the number of students you had in your program and it started to be about the mission of your program. So I, I noticed students cheering each other on saying, Hey, what are you auditioning for? Um, giving each other like good luck letters or opening night letters. We had students start having this like elevated level of success, um, in regional tours, Broadway shows, being able to participate in all of these additional extracurricular activities that were giving them well-rounded resumes to get full scholarships to like Duke University. We were just seeing this like success of like the well-rounded participant in whatever path they wanted to take. They were using dance to help them gain this level of excellence. And that has been the hands down most rewarding piece of making this change is that it has built a community that supports and fosters all of these unique paths, much like my very unique path that I've taken. And it's, it's, it's really incredible to see that because kids are smart and they follow the culture. So um, as creative leaders, we have a responsibility to be mindful of those cultures that we are creating in our spaces. What has been the, the, the number one takeaway that you have taken from this idea of trash the trophies like you're talking about in your book that every creative right now you feel needs to understand in order to create uh, a solid foundation for their business? I think the most important thing is that complacency is not progress. So if you're complacent, you're standing still. And we as creatives need to constantly be evolving and changing and saying, how do we rise? How do we take this to the next level? Even when that's not easy, that's what's going to keep everything moving forward. And that's when new and exciting things are going to be produced. What are the things that you're hearing that this message is doing in the, the, the minds and the hearts of, of the dance industry? So I heard from a parent last night or a former parent, they actually haven't been at the studio in a year or two. She wrote me and she said, I just want you to know that I truly feel like you are one of the best people that I have ever known. 
And I mean, wow, that's, that's a pretty, compliment. That's, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it brought tears to my eyes. And sometimes as creatives, I think we underestimate the power that we have in our spaces and in what we have the ability to do. And especially in this youth creative space where we are molding leaders of tomorrow. Um, it's so much more than like teaching steps or the mechanics of it. We have the opportunity to, you know, really use the art to elevate just society as a whole. And that to me is hearing, and she's not the first that I've received a message like that. And that to me is the most um, amazing and humbling part of this journey. The book is, is Trash the Trophies, which we're going to put a link to in the show notes here. What was the reason why you decided to write the book? So the book... I mean, I've had so many studio owners look at me and say, I can't do this. Like there's this wall of this unachievable kind of stepping away. They want to step away, but they fear the other side. I don't think that fear should paralyze us. So we can achieve better things if we can kind of get past that roadblock. So I was like, maybe my story will inspire others to know that they can take that step. But beyond that, because it is not a book that is anti-competition, it I hope that it is going to activate conversation about how we can guarantee whatever our creative space is that we are elevating it and taking it to levels of excellence and not just kind of rolling with the machine or the expectation or that this is how it's always been. The dance, the dance industry is fueled by com- competition season. Like from March until, you know, sometimes into the end of July, you have studios that have been training this whole entire year for competitions. And, you know, I see a lot of studios, you know, market based on their competition results. So what you're doing is literally shaking up an entire, like you said, machine. Sometimes in order for us to step in our greatness, it's going to require us to shake up the machine you know, you've redefined your message. And because of that, you're making a bigger impact. What was one thing that you feel helped you get over the fear of just taking the leap? Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying because you're literally swimming upstream and everything is kind of set against you because like you said, like this is how a lot of secular dance studios define success. It's, you know, this is what we do in competition. These are the awards we get and all of that. I just felt that if we could hone in on this humanistic approach that was much more well-rounded. We, you know, we used to have a trophy or a banner in the lobby and I was observing that nobody ever came in and asked about those, but they said, what will your program do for my child? So I was starting to see that people wanted this meaningful programming. So it was like, how can we flip the conversation to results versus humanistic and let this be an experience that, that can appeal to anyone. What they want to know is, what are you going to do for me? What did you see this message also do for your business? I don't even know how you could possibly measure. I just, I, it is tenfold off the charts healthier than it was. And in 2017, we kind of tapped into this hashtag that also kind of ties into those four pillars. It's um, be more at stage door. And that's just kind of our guiding principle personal, professional. It's like, are you being more in your behaviors, in your work in class, in your time, not in class? Like how are we elevating ourselves to constantly be more? I think that's a great, a great way to, you know, just kind of put a close to this is that we were given a gift to uh, make an impact. But the only way that we can make the impact that we were designed to make is if we allow ourselves to become 
the person we are designed to be, which often is more than we're currently living at. If somebody wants to learn more about what you're doing with Trash the Trophies, uh, your message behind that, um, where can they find you? Where, they, where can they connect with you? So I have a website, www.chastahamilton.com. And then um, social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all my name, um, which luckily is a pretty unusual name. So I would <laughs> love to hear um, from everyone because I do, you know, I, I believe in the arts and that they have such an important place in our society. And I believe in excellence. And I would, I would just love to continue the conversation. And I just appreciate you so much and for coming on and uh, really giving a lot of value to our listeners today with uh, this chat. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Here, we turn your passion into profit. Follow us on Facebook and stay tuned for another episode of the My Creative District podcast.